Thanks for listening to our Look Up podcast. I'm Patricia. And I'm Greg. And we're going to highlight what to look for in the sky in April in our Cosmic Diary. When looking at faint objects such as stars, nebulae, the Milky Way and other galaxies, it is important to allow your eyes to adapt to the dark so that you can achieve better night vision. Allow 15 minutes for your eyes to become sensitive in the dark and remember not to look at your mobile phone or any other bright device when stargazing. If you're using a star app on your phone, then switch on the red night vision mode. Mars spends a month travelling through the constellation Taurus. From April 1st to 10th, Mars will pass between the Hyades and Pleiades star clusters. On the evening of April 9th, a waxing crescent moon forms a celestial triangle with Mars and the red giant star Aldebaran. The moon never fails to impress when seen through a pair of binoculars or a telescope. Explore the craters as well as the dark lunar seas. Mare Crisium, or the Sea of Crises, will be visible near the limb of the crescent moon. Have a look along the Terminator and you just might spot long shadows being cast by mountains and hills. Look towards the southwest around 9pm and you'll spot Sirius, the brightest star in the night sky. Sirius is part of the constellation Canis Major, or the Greater Dog, one of the loyal hounds following Orion the Hunter across the sky. Sirius, also known as the Dog Star, is a member of a binary star system. Its companion is a white dwarf star, often referred to as the Pup. Canis Major is home to a number of deep sky objects, including the open star cluster M41. Lying to the south of Sirius, this cluster contains hundreds of stars including a number of white dwarfs and several red giants. M41 is best viewed through a telescope which will reveal some of the cluster members. As it is new moon on April 6th, the dark sky conditions at the beginning of April are ideal for observing deep sky objects such as M41. The constellation Leo takes pride of place in the spring night sky. One of the few constellations that looks like its namesake, Leo is easy to spot. Just look for a backwards question mark with a bright star at its bottom. This pattern of stars, or asterism, is called the sickle and marks the head, mane and chest of the lion. On the evenings of April 14th and 15th, the waxing gibbous moon lies near Regulus, the brightest star in Leo. Although Regulus appears to be a single star to the unaided eye, it is in fact a quadruple star system, four stars organized into two pairs. Have a look at Regulus through a good pair of binoculars, and if you have a steady hand, you might be able to see two points of light. The brighter point of light is Regulus A, whose stellar companion is thought to be a white dwarf, while the fainter point of light is the other pair of stars. The Lyrid meteor shower, one of the oldest known meteor showers, will peak in the early hours of April 23rd. A meteor shower occurs when the Earth passes through a stream of debris left behind by a comet. In the case of the Lyrids, the stream of debris comes from Comet Thatcher, which last visited the inner solar system in 1861. The radiant, the point on the sky where meteors will appear to be travelling directly outward from, lies near the star Vega in the constellation of Lyra. It's 
best to view the lyrids away from the radiant as they will appear longer and more spectacular from this perspective. Around 15 to 20 meteors are expected per hour, but the light from a bright waning gibbous moon may make some meteors harder to see. Find a clear spot with a low horizon and, although spring is in the air, be sure to dress up warmly. If you're up before the sun rises, look towards the south and you'll spot the gas giants Saturn and Jupiter. To the right of Jupiter is the red star Antares, the brightest star in the constellation Scorpius. The name Antares means rival of Mars. Antares has about the same color and brightness of Mars, so the star is often confused for the planet. Lying between and just below the two gas giants is a well-known asterism called the teapot in the constellation Sagittarius. Under good sky conditions, our Milky Way galaxy appears as steam rising out of the spout of the teapot with the center of our galaxy lying to the upper right of the tip of the spout. Towards the end of the month, a waning gibbous moon will be near Jupiter on the morning of the 24th and near Saturn on the morning of the 25th. As always, if you take any photos of the night sky, please do tweet them to at ROG Astronomers. You may also want to check out our night sky highlights blog on our website, rng.co.uk. But now it's time for our cosmic news. So hello and welcome to the cosmic news part of our podcast. Each month, Patricia and I choose a story which has broken in the last month that we want to tell you a little bit more about. And then you get your chance to vote on your favourite one on our Twitter feed at ROG Astronomers. So Patricia, what have you got for us this month? So this month I want to talk about a story that popped up on my sort of Twitter timeline as well as wound up in um, my mailbox. It wasn't a big breaking news story, but it was something that when I spotted it, I thought, well, this is something I would love to talk about in uh, this cosmic news story for April. And of course, as we're all aware, July 2019 marks the 50th anniversary of the historic Apollo 11 manned moon landing. And of course, Apollo 11 was the culmination of many years of hard work, trial and error. It turns out that during their time on the moon, Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong placed something very special on the lunar surface. What it was, was an embroidered mission patch bearing the names White, Grissom, Chaffee and the mission Apollo 1. Mm. Yes. Of course, these three astronauts paid the ultimate price in NASA's efforts to get astronauts to the moon. But of course, you may be wondering why I've brought up Apollo 1. Well, that's because it was recently announced by Northrop Grumman that they would be naming their next resupply ship to the ISS after Roger Chaffee, one of the Apollo 1 astronauts. Um, and for those who may be wondering who Northrop Grumman are, they're of course one of the companies involved in sending resupply ships to the International Space Station, but they also played a vital role in the Apollo missions. So why have they decided to name a resupply ship after Chaffee? Well, to understand that we have to head back to the 1960s. So mm -hmm. we're going on a little bit of a time trip again in today's story. So of course, 
Back in 1961, we had then US President John F. Kennedy deliver his stirring speech in which he declared his intention to focus their efforts on landing humans on the moon and of course importantly bringing them safely back to the earth um, and of course the aim at that time was to achieve it before the end of the decade but more importantly before the Soviets could do the same thing because yes. obviously they were in the depths <laughs> of the space race at that time. Now, NASA's Mercury and Gemini programs were the first steps towards achieving the goal of Apollo. And during those programs, they tested a number of things such as human behavior in space, which, of course, they weren't sure how humans would cope with that isolation. But they also tested things um, in terms of technical um, aspects of the mission, including spacecraft procedures such as dockings and rendezvous, which were especially important, of course, for Apollo because you would have them do the docking with the lunar module and they needed to make sure all of that would work but of course the Apollo program was what was going to be taking the astronauts hmm. to the moon so we get to 1967 and NASA are busy preparing for the first manned Apollo launch so the mission called Apollo AS204 was scheduled for liftoff on February 21st of that year the three astronauts who were chosen for this mission were Ed White, Gus Grissom, or also known as Virgil Grissom, um, and Roger Chaffee. They were to be America's first three-person space crew and the first crew of the Apollo program. Well, Ed White was an experienced astronaut and was, of course, the first American to perform a spacewalk on the 3rd of June 1965 during the Gemini 4 mission. Uh, Gus Grissom was one of the seven Mercury astronauts and was also experienced with spaceflight. Roger Chaffee, though, was a rookie, and this Apollo mission was going to be his very first mission to space. Oh. So we get to January 27th, and the Apollo launch team are hard at work at Launchpad 34 at Cape Canaveral. They're going to conduct a pre-flight test, a so-called plugs-out test, mm. where basically you, you unplug all of the umbilical power cords. These are the cords that supply power to the command module, and the spacecraft then switches over to battery power. So you're running everything on internal power. And in addition to this, during the test, the crew were actually going to be running through the entire countdown, just as they would do for a launch. Also for this test, their command module was mounted onto the Saturn 1B rocket, which was a rocket that was going to launch them into space, but the rocket was not fueled. Hmm. So it was just mounted onto the rocket, and this meant that they called the test a non-hazardous test. So the astronauts were suited up, strapped into the command module, and the command module was then pressurized with a pure oxygen environment, which is something they'd done previously with Mercury and Gemini yep. programs. And then the testing began. But unfortunately, it was a day filled with problems. There were a number of minor problems that cropped up. Uh, there were reports that Ed White complained about an odd odor when he was breathing in the oxygen in his spacesuit. That then delayed a couple of things. And all of these problems just kept cropping up and delaying things further and further until finally there was a communications failure which forced a hold on the test at around 5.40 that evening on January 27th. Uh, Grissom was heard to say, 
how are we going to get to the moon if we can't talk between three buildings? This was a clear sign of the frustration that the astronauts were obviously feeling at that point with all of these delays that were going on. Hmm. But then at 6.31 p.m., one of the astronauts was heard saying what sounded like the word fire. The reason that this is often disputed, some people say flames, some people say fire, was because of the communication problem. There was lots of static. They were struggling to hear what the astronauts were saying. Um, but immediately after that word came out, uh, Ed White was confirmed as saying, we have a fire in the cockpit. Within a matter of seconds, this fire spread and completely engulfed this command module that these astronauts were in. Of course, the reason that the fire spread so rapidly was because of the pure oxygen environment, mm. but also because they had used flammable materials inside this module. Again, nothing unusual because it had been that way for the Mercury yeah, and Gemini absolutely. programs, and they had not had any problems at this point. But of course, this intense fire raging inside the module led to an increase in pressure in the module, which then ruptured the hull, sending smoke billowing out. And it was this toxic smoke, as you can imagine, this fire just burning through all the wires and material inside the module. Ground crew and technicians that were nearby tried to get to the hatch, to open the hatch up to get to the astronauts, but were just driven back repeatedly by the heat and toxic smoke that was coming from this blaze. By the time they actually succeeded in getting the hatch open, around five minutes had passed since the outbreak of the fire inside the command module. And by the time they got in, they realized it was too late. Yeah. And White, Grissom and Chaffee had unfortunately lost their lives in this blaze during what was supposed to be a routine yeah. test. And um, you may be familiar with the fact that this wasn't the first time that they, that they had lost astronauts in the, in the program. Some had actually crashed during flights to and from various bases, but this was the first time that they had lost astronauts inside a spacecraft. Yeah. So it was the first big disaster that the Apollo program had come across. Naturally, after this event, the Apollo program was immediately put on hold while investigations were carried out. And from what they could see through the charred wreckage, they determined that the fire had most likely started by a short circuit on the floor somewhere near Gus Grissom's seat. And because it would have been by their feet, the astronauts would not have seen this happening because of how they were seated inside yeah. the command module. They also concluded that that pure oxygen environment combined with all those flammable materials meant that it was in actual fact a disaster waiting to happen. Yeah. And that they had been fortunate that none of the other missions had ever experienced this problem, but partly because none of them had been as technical as what the Apollo command module was going to be because of the purposes that it would be serving. So this investigation naturally led to significant changes in the design of the, of the Apollo command module. All combustible materials were removed, a fire extinguishing system was actually installed, as well as an emergency oxygen supply system in case astronauts became separated from their suits because it turned out that the astronauts had died due to smoke inhalation. So what mm -hmm. had happened was the fire had burnt through their oxygen hoses which meant that they were inhaling the toxic fumes. And it was later suggested that had that not happened, 
they would have survived in oh, that really? time period. They would have been burned, but so they would have, have they yep. most likely would have survived. In addition to all of this, they actually changed spacesuit design as well. They changed the materials that they were using so that they were replaced with non-flammable material. And importantly, they decided that whenever they were doing ground testing, they would rather use an oxygen-nitrogen environment yes. rather than a pure oxygen environment. And, of course, the hatch. Because the original design on the Apollo command module was for an inward opening hatch. But right. during the ground test, they had the pressure inside the module was higher than the external pressure. There was no way no, that they yeah. would be able to open the door. And there was a complex series of latches that held it into place as well. So that was completely redesigned so that it became an outward opening hatch that could be opened within 30 seconds. So if there was any problem at any point, if the astronauts inside became incapacitated for any reason, the ground crew could open the hatch and get them out. So what the Apollo 1 disaster actually did was it revealed a number of design flaws in that original design. And many people since then have said that all the design changes that were implemented after the disaster actually paved the way for the success of Apollo 11. In other words, had that not happened, it may have happened on a later mission yeah, absolutely. and could have resulted in the Apollo program either being scrapped in entirety or meaning that we would not, no one would have got to the moon by 1969. It could have been much later. But rather interestingly as well, the disaster actually led to a change in the way that NASA had been operating at the time. Because, of course, when everything goes right, there was a gung-ho attitude. There was sloppy engineering. Yep. No one was looking at obvious design flaws. Now, we now sitting here would say, why on earth? Pure oxygen. Why, why, why? But... If it ain't broke, don't fix it. And that was the attitude, was it had worked for Mercury, it worked for Gemini, yeah. it will work for Apollo. And actually on the Monday morning following the disaster, the flight director at the time, who was Gene Kranz, delivered a speech to his team at Mission Control and concluded by saying, when you leave this meeting today, you will go back to your office and the first thing you will do there is to write tough and competent on your blackboards. It will never be erased. Each day when you enter the room, these words will remind you of the price paid by Grissom, White, and Chaffee. These words are the price of admission to the ranks of mission control. And it was this change of mindset that also led to the success of bringing back the crew of Apollo 13. Mm. And Gene Kranz was flight director of Apollo 13 as well. So... It just shows you this full circle thing that happened there that they had to have one disaster to change their mindset that when they had the problems with Apollo 13, they could actually bring the crew back home to the Earth. So now we can talk about the significance of naming the supply ship after Roger Chaffee. And the reason they've named it after him was because of the three Apollo 1 astronauts. He was the only one who never went into space. Oh, I see. Yes, of course. So by naming the supply ship after Roger Chaffee, he will 
in some way be going into space, which was what his dream and ambition was. And I think uh, the supply ship is scheduled to take off on April 17th. And then for Roger Chaffee's family, I think this will be a very special moment for them in memory of him. Um, this is a tradition that many uh, companies do. Uh, Northrop Grumman has named a couple of other space uh, resupply ships after fallen astronauts. But for me, when I read about this one, this was particularly poignant because of the fact that Roger Chaffee, Ed White, and Gus Grissom, as I said, did pay that ultimate sacrifice. But in the end, as some people have said, it actually probably ended up saving the Apollo program hmm. and got men to the moon. So it's a lovely tribute. So if anybody loves watching these launches, be sure to have a look on April 17th and keep an eye out for SS Roger Chaffee as it makes its way into space to the International Space Station. Oh, excellent. I mean, it's, it's a, a terribly tragic tale, obviously, and uh, there have been accidents since, of course, yeah. um, with uh, the space shuttle disasters. Yeah. However, it's really a testament to these incredible people, the, the astronauts and the engineers and, uh, and technicians on the ground, that, uh, but particularly for the astronauts, that they still feel that this is worth it. Going yeah. out there, exploring space, advancing human understanding yeah. is worth yeah. that potential risk of course the the aim is to make that risk as small as yeah. we possibly can it's true but i mean at the end of the day as i think they'll often quite happily point out in a rather strange way is that they're strapped to giant bombs yeah basically and um anything can go wrong and i mean obviously that happened i think was it in october last year when the soyuz launch there was an emergency right. during the soyuz launch which yep. saw the which saw the astronauts on board that having to be ejected away from the main rocket during the launch yes. um there's even a fantastic video i think of that was taken i think Possibly from the International Space Station, you can sort of see the point at which things oh, really? went wrong, and you can you can see it as well. But but that's the point: is that there are risks involved with yeah. it. Um, but these people are willing to take the risk, as you say, for the advancement of science and what we get from it. And I think that if we compare probably space travel now to what it was like during the Apollo program, I mean, this really was venturing out to where no one had literally been yes, before. Yes, absolutely. Um, and these were just the risks that were involved. And unfortunately, sometimes things have to go wrong or they will go wrong, but that allows us to make things better in the, lo in the long run. Yep. But um, as you know, there are many, uh, I think there's a plot dedicated to the Apollo crew at Launchpad 34. Um, of course, there are craters on the moon that have been named after them as well. So their names will live on. Yeah. And they're fondly remembered by their fellow the Apollo astronauts as mm. well, especially for the sacrifice they made. But um, yeah, so I thought this was just a lovely thing to, to yes. talk about. It's sort of bittersweet story. For this Brilliant month. story indeed. Um, so, my story this month um, is quite a bit different. Um, I'm going to be talking about uh, escapees of the galaxy, objects which are uh, being ejected from our little portion of space. Um, so, although it may not feel like it, you are moving. We're all moving extremely fast. Um, the Earth is spinning, of course, making you travel up to about 1,600 kilometers per hour if you're at the equator, about half that where we are here. Um, and the Earth itself is orbiting around the Sun, meaning that you're actually traveling uh, a little over 100,000 kilometers per hour. 
So in the 10 minutes uh, between your alarm going off in the morning and the second time it goes off, because of course we all press the snooze button, uh, you've already travelled something like 17,000 kilometres. Um, which I personally think affords you another press of the snooze button. That's, that's pretty good going. Definitely, yeah. yeah. Um, so we move very, very fast, but that's actually not where our motion stops. Far from it. The sun itself is moving through our galaxy at something like 800,000 kilometres per hour, or 230 kilometres every second. It's a really, really, really fast speed. Um, and the galaxy itself is moving as well around relative to other galaxies, although it becomes a bit difficult at that point to choose the point that you compare your speed against. Uh, speed is relative. Uh, we have no fixed point in order to be able to, to, to determine our speed against. We always determine speeds compared to something else. It becomes a bit more difficult when you're talking about galaxies flying around the universe. So simply put, we move a lot. But some things move a lot faster than others. Uh, our sun is moving primarily because it's orbiting around our galaxy, uh, around inside of our galaxy, the Milky Way. Our sun, like the vast majority of the 300 odd billion stars out there, uh, is bound to our galaxy. Uh, its speed enables it to keep orbiting around the galaxy without falling towards the centre, but it's certainly not travelling fast enough to escape our galaxy either, which is probably a good thing. But a handful of objects can actually escape our galaxy. Uh, these are stars that, while technically inside the boundaries of our galaxy, they aren't really part of it anymore. It's a bit like a, a car travelling through a small town on the way somewhere else. Yes, they're technically in the town, but are they really a part of it if they're never really going to stay there? These stars uh, can be travelling two or three times the speed uh, that the sun does. And they're known as hypervelocity stars. Now there are a few different ways that these stars could be ejected from our galaxy. The main one being some form of gravitational interaction, which is similar to a slingshot manoeuvre. When we send probes to other planets, we want to keep the amount of fuel that we're sending as small as possible because fuel is heavy and therefore you need more fuel in order to launch that fuel along with the, the spaceship and it sort of runs out of control a bit so ideally we want to get as many speed boosts as we can for free and we do that by doing slingshot maneuvers passing our probes close to the moon close to a planet close to something out there in the rest of the solar system, um, which steals a little bit of energy away from that planet. So technically, that object moves a little bit slower after the probe has passed by, but so tiny that you would never, ever notice. The probe, however, gets a massive speed boost and a change of direction. So it can use this uh, slingshot in order to speed up to get to distant parts of the solar system much, much quicker than it would normally, uh, but also to change direction in the, uh, the solar system, which again requires fuel, unless you do one of these slingshots. The same sort of thing can occur with these stars, um, but they need a much, much bigger boost than these probes. So a, a simple planet won't do. Even stars just aren't enough. 
In fact, the prevailing theory for how these stars are ejected from our galaxy involves passing too close to the supermassive black hole at the centre of our galaxy. And if you're playing Look Up Bingo, yes, that was supermassive black hole. You can check that one off again. Um, but recently, studies have turned up that hypervelocity stars that cannot have come from the centre of our galaxy. If you take their path and take them back to their apparent origins within our galaxy, you find they cannot possibly have come from the centre. They must have come from somewhere further out. So what else could possibly have accelerated these stars? Perhaps they passed by a very dense cluster of stars. Now, this wouldn't have necessarily as much mass as the supermassive black hole, nor would it be as compact, but could still potentially provide that boost that the star requires. Um, a rather more exotic idea, though, is the idea of it being flung out by a different type of black hole. So the vast majority of astrophysical black holes in the universe are stellar mass black holes. These occur when a star comes to the end of its life, goes through a supernova explosion, and leaves behind a black hole. And these can be anything between a few times and a few hundred times the mass of our sun, give or take. The other really common type of supermassive black hole that we're aware of are the supermassive black holes. There are approximately one per galaxy, and they're anything from um, a million to a hundred billion times the mass of our sun. That leaves this huge region of a few thousand to a hundred thousand times the mass of our sun uh, where there apparently aren't any black holes. And that's kind of weird. Um, and we don't think that's the case at all. We think, that, in fact, there are loads of black holes in this region as well. They're called intermediate mass black holes. The problem is we've never seen any of them. They're rare enough that they don't tend to affect things very often, um, but small enough that we struggle to see their effects even when they do happen. So maybe some of these hypervelocity stars are uh, stars being ejected by these intermediate mass black holes, and that per could perhaps be a way to uh, filling this void in our understanding of black holes. But there's another way to get stars up to speed, uh, but it has a pretty big requirement. Uh, it requires they be dead first. Ah, yeah, <laughs> just a small requirement. <laughs> When massive stars come to the end of their lives, as I've already mentioned, they can undergo a supernova explosion. Now, during this br relatively brief event, as much energy is released as our sun will throughout the entirety of its 10 billion year lifetime. So this is a vast amount of energy being released by these powerful explosions. And... As I've already mentioned, they often leave behind dense stellar remnants, perhaps a black hole or perhaps a neutron star. These are the cores of the original star that's been crushed down into a tiny, tiny little object. For a neutron star, uh, it's up to about three times the mass of our sun, so a fair amount of stuff, but compressed into an object that would easily fit into the N25 ring road. Really, really tiny. Uh, their gravity is impressive too. So much mass contained in such a small object uh, means that the light emitted from the far side of the neutron star, from your point of view, can actually be bent around to the front. So when you look at a neutron star, you were in, if you were close enough, you'd be able to see the entirety of the surface of that star. 
or almost the entirety of the surface, uh, although deeply distorted because of how it's been bent around the outside. Um, so yeah, very peculiar. You can see both sides of an object, even the one that's facing away from you. Not that you'd want to get too close to these things anyway. They often emit jets of particles aligned with the extremely intense magnetic fields that these objects have. Uh, these jets of particles amplify beams of light that, produce, that are across the entire electromagnetic spectrum, from X-rays all the way down to radio waves. And these jets of particles and these, these beams of light, they're not necessarily aligned with the way that the, the star spins. And the stars really, really, really spin uh, up to a thousand times per second. Some of the fastest spinning objects in the universe. This uh, makes these beams of light uh, sort of move in a sort of circular pattern across the sky. And that means that if you look at a, one of these objects from afar, if the beam of light is pointing towards you, then the neutron star will appear very, very bright. And then it moves away from you and appears much darker. And so what, event, what happens is it looks like this star is pulsing. Hence the name for some of these neutron stars are pulsars. One pulsar in particular, the very helpfully named <coughs> PSR J0002 plus is about 6,500 light years from the Earth. And it's a little bit more impressive than your everyday bog-standard neutron star, if there is such a thing. It's travelling at over a thousand kilometres per second. That's five times the speed of the sun moving around the, uh, the our galaxy. And it did not get that fast because of a black hole. Instead, it was propelled there by the very event that made it, the supernova. Now, it's been known for quite a while that supernovae could provide vast kicks, huge amounts of energy that push these remnants off into deep space. Um, there's another type of explosion connected to a supernova sometimes, um, known as a gamma ray burst. And these, some of these gamma ray bursts come from distant parts of the universe um, apparently occurring in the middle of nowhere, not connected to any galaxy. And that's rather peculiar because you expect pretty much everything that happens in the universe to happen around where there's stuff, and there's stuff in galaxies. Um, in reality, it turns out that these particular gamma ray bursts are caused by two of these neutron stars colliding with one another far from the galaxy where they were formed. And they were kicked out by these supernova explosions. So if you have a pair of stars, both big enough to undergo a, a supernova, one goes off, turns into a neutron star, starts to kick this binary out. Uh, the other one goes off, gives it even more speed and kicks it well out of the galaxy. And then it takes a very, very, very long time for these two neutron stars to spin down, collide and explode again, producing this gamma ray burst. So we've known that these things exist for quite a while. The interesting thing about PSR J0002 um, is that we can actually track its path back to the supernova remnant that caused it. It's about uh, 10,000 years old, um, so 
just within the history of human civilization, uh, this star exploded, was given a vast kick out into space, and travelled around 53 light years in those 10,000 years. Uh, which is an impressive feat for something that isn't, well, light, to be honest. Things don't tend to travel that fast. So that's a, a very, very, very large distance to travel in an extremely short period of time. Perhaps studying more of these objects will reveal just how supernovae manage these incredible kicks out into space. Um, but for now, these objects are destined to leave our galaxy uh, and never return. They are going to disappear well out into the deep depths of space. And since neutron stars don't really do much after they've been formed, they'll pretty much keep doing that for quite a while. I sort of have this vision now, sort of like cosmic popcorn sort of popping off and yeah. all of these stars are sort of being flung out in random directions and during all these events. I mean, it's just, it's completely mind-boggling to, to, I mean, we, we know that, as you said, they're extremely energetic events, supernovae, but it just to visualize that these things are just sort of flying out into space and yeah. and having this enough as you said, speed to actually escape galaxy yeah. it's it's quite a feat to it, do it's that. not easy yeah. to do absolutely and, and believe it or not that that popcorn analogy is actually remarkably close to how we think that these supernovae might achieve this uh, when uh the the kernel of corn pops it doesn't pop uniformly instead you get a little crack along one edge of the po of the kernel yeah. and the whole thing explodes out the side and that of course means that the the whole thing is asymmetric so yeah. it, it's it has a preference to one direction than the other you get a force that propels the corn uh across your microwave or whatever yeah. you're doing uh, you're or using more to make alarmingly it. in the bowl just as you're about to eat it that when, can when, happen when yeah. that very last one sort of surprises <laughs> you and just explodes out the bowl but yeah and the idea is sort of the same thing here. Rather than the supernova exploding in all directions equally, you get one side being preferentially explodey, um, for want of a better word. And so would there are any asymmetry in the explosion might result in the, the neutron star being forced in one direction rather than in another. Well, that's very interesting, but I think we will allay public fears. We don't have any... We don't think there are, there are none. <laughs> being fired towards us. No, at any no, point indeed. From, as as from. as far as we know, we are we are pretty safe. And even though these things do travel at incredibly high speeds, fifty three light years is still a tiny, tiny fraction of, of our course. galaxy, yeah. and that took ten thousand years. So uh, even if one was fired towards us today, it would still be tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of years before yeah. it actually So, So no need to take out sort of pulsar insurance at any I, point. As far as I know, I don't think you need to be covered for that. Awesome. Okay, so that's it for our cosmic news this month. Two new stories for you to choose between. Last month's uh, stories, so Patricia last month was talking about the legacy of Opportunity, the, uh, the rover that lasted a lot longer than it was expected to. And I was talking about the discovery of a rock that originally came from Earth somehow landing right next to one of the Apollo landing sites on the moon. And with 69% of the vote... Patricia, Opportunity's Legacy definitely won that one. 
This month, uh, please do vote on your favourite story at ROG Astronomers on our Twitter feed. And join us next month on Look Up. Thank you.